We are embarking on a new journey together this morning, and I am quite excited. Beginning a new series this morning called Patient Pursuit, going into the Old Testament, looking at some narrative. That is actually my favorite thing to preach through. So uh, I, I, for one, I I loved going through Philippians with you, but I have been looking forward to this series for a few weeks ever since I started working through what we would do next. So it'll be a joy for me. Why are we doing this? Why are we diving into the Old Testament, looking at a book that's thousands of years old, speaking about people that are almost 3,000 years removed from us, Why is it relevant? What does it have to do with us? Well, ultimately, all of us, we have a worship problem. Now, I don't mean we have a musical worship problem that somehow we need to fix that, but our hearts, our hearts are inclined to worship the wrong things. And in the book of Kings, what we find is a group of people, the people of God, who had a worship problem. They were inclined to worship the wrong things. Specifically, they worshiped Baal. Baal, a Canaanite god. And we have this thought that in the Old Testament, as people wander away from God, our culture, and even this creeps into the church, we think that God wants to smite his people, or that he's full of judgment and wrath. Now certainly, there is a lot of judgment and wrath that we see in the scriptures, but is that primarily what we find in the pages of scripture, especially in the Old Testament? in books like First and Second Kings? And I think the answer is absolutely not. When we actually see what's going on in the pages of Scripture, we'll see that God is actually patiently pursuing his people. Hence, the title of our series called Patient Pursuit. What is God like when he's dealing with a wayward people? His wayward people. What is his posture Because if we get this wrong, it impacts our lives in a profound way, in a negative way. And we won't know how we ought to be, who we ought to be as the people of God. So, just a little bit of background on 1st and 2nd Kings. Originally, and 1st and 2nd Kings kind of follows the dynasties of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. They used to be one kingdom, but they split into a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Don't worry, I'm going to have a map here in a minute. And they have this steady decline, a steady decline into idolatry to the point where they are removed from the promised land. And so the book of Kings is really asking the question of why were they removed? How did God respond to them? Why did this happen? So that's what we find in Kings. But in the middle of Kings... We encounter kind of a pause from focusing on the monarchs, and instead we start following the prophet Elijah, and then also eventually his successor, the prophet Elisha. So this series that we're going to be in is kind of following this middle section of the book of Kings where we hone in on the prophet Elijah. And we're honing in there because Elijah serves very much as a paradigm for how God interacts with his people through the prophets throughout the rest of the Old Testament. He's kind of seen as one of those chief figures in the Old Testament, even though there's only a few pages actually written about him in the Old Testament. So that's why we're going there. Um, I'm excited about it. We're going to be going together. In today's sermon, we're going to have, uh, we're going to start with an intro where we set the stage, and then we're going to have three acts. Now, I'll tell you this. I tried really, really hard to only have two points today. I really did. I, I promise. 
But as I was walking through it, I realized we needed to have three. So there are three. I'm not, I'm not a three-point guy, but I've, I've been very much a three-point guy as I've been in this church. So here we go. We're going to have three points today. Now, normally we stand and, and read the scriptures together, but because today's passage is so long, and because I think narrative kind of works better in, in the preaching sense when you discover the story as you go and you let the narrative arc kind of shape the preaching, we're not going to read it beforehand. We're actually going to read, read as we go and let that shape us and let us kind of discover. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of a first-time reader. You may have read this story a bazillion times, but what would it be like or what would you learn if you were reading this for the first time? and didn't know what was going to happen. That's the thing I want to ask of you. And one other note, in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, I've mentioned this before, I believe, but when you see Lord in capital letters, that is the divine name of God, Yahweh. And out of respect, Jewish scribes started substituting Adonai, which meant Lord, in that place of Yahweh because they didn't want to offend him and get his name wrong as they were speaking it. So as I read, I'm actually going to be using the name Yahweh whenever we see Lord. Now, I'm not trying to do that out of, out of disrespect, but I'm trying to help us understand that God has a personal name and that in the scriptures, he wants his people to see him in a personal way. He is not just God Almighty. He's not Elohim. That's another word for God that's kind of up here, but he is Yahweh, the personal God who rescues his people. Makes a difference when we see him as happy. He's not just God. He is Yahweh. Okay, so that's why I'm doing that. I wanted to say that up front. But you guys ready? Okay, let's dive in together. First, let me pray. Father, we pray for open hearts and open ears. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, let's start actually in chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Azah king of Judah... Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, so let's pause here in a minute and see what's going on in this section of the narrative. This is kind of introducing us to what's going on in the life of Israel. This is the northern kingdom that had rebelled against the Davidic uh, monarchy, and Israel just went downhill real quickly. They didn't have any good kings, and Ahab comes on the scene, and he is the worst. Israel is worshiping the wrong God under Ahab. Before Ahab, Israel was worshiping idols. They set up a golden calf, but they still called it, those, that calf, Yahweh. Now under Ahab, they completely abandon that, and instead they worship Baal. Now why is this important? Baal was the, uh, one of the chief deities of the Canaanites, the people that the, the people of God were supposed to drive out of the promised land. 
So he's going back to the way things used to be, to these evil and wicked ways. And you see that even with this note that Jericho is being built in these days. So Jericho was destroyed during the conquest, and Joshua said, if anybody builds this, it's going to cost him your child. And here we have somebody under Ahab's authority building Jericho. So the author is creating this picture of saying, Ahab, going the wrong way. Instead of walking towards Yahweh, he's regressing, going back to the Canaanites. The Sidonians were a Canaanite people. They also worshipped Baal. So he is intermarrying with the Canaanites and going, again, the wrong way. Building an altar to Baal, making an Asherah, doing all this stuff. Now, this raises the question, why were the people of God so tempted to worship Baal? Well, it has to do a lot with the geography of the Promised Land. They had a wet and a dry season. Their wet season was basically from about um, kind of the late fall all the way to uh, kind of spring, May time. And that was when it would rain. And then the rest of the months, there would be no rain. So if it didn't rain very much during the wet season or at all, you had a big problem during the summer season when your crops were supposed to grow. So Baal was a storm god. He was the god who was in charge of rain. Not only that, he was a fertility god. So you have to worship him through having sex. So that's a pretty good combination. You've got rain that you really need in this geographical region, and it's fun to worship him. Why not? So here you have the Israelites. They are tempted to go and run after Baal. Tempted. Now, here's another thing about Baal. If you notice, it's not raining for half the year. So what's going on with Baal then? Well, Baal, during those years, or those, that season, they thought that Baal died, that he was conquered by the god of death, Mot. So half the year, Baal would be alive and bringing rain, and half the year, Mot, death, would reign over Baal, uh, and, you know, he'd be gone. So you have this ongoing kind of resurrection cycle, if you will. So we have two Canaanite gods that kind of play into the picture that are going to shape the story that we are about to encounter. We have Baal and we have Mot. Baal and Mot. As we go throughout this series, I want you to be asking the question, what is my Baal? What is the false god that I am tempted to follow? That maybe a thousand years people look back on me and be like, why are you following that? What is your Baal? Let's dive into the main text and get to reading. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of Yahweh came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is in east of the Jordan, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahweh. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. <clears throat> and after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Okay, all of a sudden, this guy Elijah just appears on the scene. We don't get any backstory, nothing's told of him, but all of a sudden he says, hey, it's not going to rain except by my word. This prophet of God shows up and says to Ahab, no, Yahweh says it's not going to rain, and... He's living. It's not because he's dead. It's because he's living. He has more control. He has all authority. 
And he says it's not going to rain. This brings us to our first point. Yahweh disciplines his people in love. Yahweh disciplines his people in love. I don't want to spend much time on this first little section. But we do need to see that God is trying to get the attention of his people. He's not withholding rain as a punishment. If he wanted to wipe out Israel for worshiping Baal, he just would have withheld rain and said nothing. But instead, he's telling them. He's entering into a contest with Baal. He's saying, I'm better than Baal. Don't worship him. Worship me. So he's disciplining them to show them that he is better than what they are trusting in. Our response to the circumstances and hardships in our life are often brought about by the Lord to show us what we truly worship. For example, I struggle when I get stuck in traffic with getting angry. Rock says I have road rage, but I've never like started yelling at somebody, well, where they could see me, or gotten out of my car or anything. Now, the good thing about Sioux Center is, you know, traffic's not really a thing. It's, it's good for my soul. But the truth is, is the traffic is not the problem. If I'm stuck in traffic, the traffic is revealing my heart. Because Rock's maybe sitting in the car next to me, and she's fine. She's not angry. So the issue isn't the traffic. It's what's going on inside of me. The traffic is probably God's discipline in my life to show me, hey, Mark, there is something in your heart. Maybe it's being in control. It's being on time. Who knows what it is that you are trusting in instead of me. And so I'm bringing this about so that you see how foolish it is to trust in that thing because it can't save you. Trust in me instead. It's God's discipline. So let your circumstances, when you encounter them, direct your gaze to the Lord. Don't see things as punishment but as correction, as things that expose what's going on inside of you. Later on in this section, we see, so God is disciplining Israel as a whole, Israel as a whole but he's taking care of Elijah, and he's doing it miraculously through these ravens, unexpectedly providing for him in this wilderness area. It should kind of, in our minds, make us think of God's people being in the wilderness and him continuing to, to supply their need. And right now, the author of 1 Kings is kind of foreshadowing how God will continue to miraculously supply for Elijah. So let's keep going. Again, the first point was Yahweh disciplines his people in love. But now we're going to see how God provides for his people, specifically for Elijah and someone else. I'll give you the point, actually, before I read it. Here it is. Point two for today is Yahweh is the only God who truly provides. Yahweh is the only God who truly provides. So let's see how that's the case. Verse 8. I'll read that again, so if you don't get it down, it's okay. Then the word of Yahweh came to him. Remember, the brook has, has dried up. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he... Oh, I want to stop there. So... Stopping in verse, uh, verse 9, so God is calling him, hey, go to Zarephath. Where is Zarephath inside? And I've got a laser pointer here. I've got a map I want to show you. I think it's the top button. There we go. All right. So here's the northern kingdom Israel. Samaria is their capital where they're doing all this bad worship. Um, and God tells him, hey, go up here to Sidon, to their territory where they really worship Baal. Go to Zarephath. It's right here on the coast. In Sidon's territory. This is a long way from Israel 
and where the people of God are. Long way. That is the heart of enemy territory. Already we've seen, we got Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, the source of all of these problems, and that'll become really fleshed out later on, not today, but in in coming weeks. And God is saying, go there, and I'm going to provide for you there. From whom? A widow. Someone that shouldn't be able to provide at all. We're going from ravens to widows in enemy territory. God is making a statement. He's making a statement about the impotency of Baal and about Yahweh's power. It's odd, isn't it, for God to say, no, go there, especially in this time, because deities were thought of as being localized. If you went to an enemy territory, your God wasn't there. He didn't have any power. That's why if you conquered a people, it was seen as really cool because, oh, our God's better than yours. But one thing Yahweh is always trying to get his people to see is like, I'm not a local deity. I am Lord of all creation. You can trust me no matter where you go. So let's keep reading and see what happens to Elijah. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As Yahweh your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. Now let's stop there for a minute. This is a big ask that Elijah is saying. Obviously, when God has said he's commanded a widow, something hadn't been communicated to this widow, We ought to think of this word commanded in the same way of he's commanding the ravens, that he's ordered it, that it's purposed by God, not necessarily that God has spoken to the widow and said, hey, this is going to happen. But we have this big ask that Elijah presents to her. If you're in her shoes, what would your response be? Here's this guy from Israel in the south who worships Yahweh, not Baal, and he's showing up and he's like, hey, give me the last bit of your food. I know we've got some Hawkeye and Cyclone fans in in the room. Let's say, uh, this is probably not going to happen, but let's just say in some weird, weird way that Iowa and Iowa State play each other in the national championship game this year. So they play each other again. I'm sure that'd be riveting television for the nation. So they're playing each other, and, and you have tickets to the game. So you're going to the game, you're walking up to the stadium. And whether you're a Hawkeye fan or a Cyclone fan, I don't care. But you're walking up, and somebody in the opposing gear walks up to you. You know, they're, they're decked out. They, they got the jersey. They got, they got it all. They, they are a walking advertisement for the opposition's team. And they walk up to you, and they're like, hey, I don't have a ticket. Will you give me yours? No. Absolutely not. 
But that's the ask here, something far greater even. You are on the verge of death. You have nothing to eat after this. Will you give it to me? And if you do, Yahweh will supply all of your needs. It's a big ask. Big ask. Well, we know what's going to happen. God already told us. But let's read in verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of Yahweh that he spoke by Elijah. Two beautiful responses, one from the widow and one from the Lord. Yahweh has marched into Baal's territory and said, I've got this. Baal is nothing to me. So again, let's look at our main point. Yahweh is the only God who truly provides. The only God who truly provides provides. It brings us to the question, for whom does Yahweh provide? He doesn't just provide for anyone, but there's a particular type of person that he's looking for. Look at this widow. She trusts Yahweh by faith. God provides for those who trust him in faith. See, the widow, she's an outsider. She has nothing. She doesn't think she brings anything to the table. She's at the end of herself. That is the heart that the Lord provides for. She demonstrates faith. Those who walk by faith in Yahweh are those who are His. This has always been the case. If you look in the scriptures, those who are Yahweh's, who eternally belong to Him, are people like this widow, those who walk by faith. That's abundantly clear in Hebrews, as our church looked at before I arrived this past spring. It's by faith that we are made right with God. Now, let me define faith. Faith is basically trust. That's kind of the simplest term you can use, where you believe him and you take him at his word and order your life accordingly. And the Reformers gave three components to faith. They said, on the one hand, there's knowledge. There's this intellectual understanding of what you believe. There's also assent, where you say, I agree with that. I think it's true. But those two are incomplete. There's something in the will. There's a commitment or a trust or a reliance that ought to happen. So it's not simple intellectual acknowledgement of who God is, but an active response to what God has said and done. An active response. Now God provides both physical and spiritual needs. We talked last week at length about God in his riches providing for us. So I don't really want to go down the the road of physical needs again two weeks in a row. So I want to talk instead about our spiritual needs. The ways God spiritually provides for us. He provided for the widow's physical needs as she was walking by faith. She made that commitment. She didn't just say, hey, Elijah, I believe you, and then go home and continue to bake her bread and eat it herself. She acted upon it. That is what faith is. And so for us, when we look at the widow, we see that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives us both the kind of the tunes, the melodies, the music of God's redemptive work that we see fulfilled in Christ. Imagine a symphony. You catch kind of, you know, there's the kind of the, the musical theme of a symphony, and as the symphony goes, you kind of catch those, the hints of that melody as it, as it plays, and then maybe in the grand finale kind of comes out in all of its glory and force. That's what we see in the Old Testament. It's the, the hints of what is to come. And so here we see God physically providing for this widow, but he's wanting Israel and us to trust him with more than just their physical needs. 
He wants them to trust Him with their entire lives, both their physical and their spiritual needs. And our greatest spiritual needs is ultimately our need for Christ, is it not? We need provision for our sin. We don't just need daily bread, but we need somebody to forgive us. We need a crucified Savior on a cross. And God is trying to say to us time and time again, that has been provided, it is finished. When I read a passage like this, my eyes need to go to Jesus and ask the question, how has God provided? He's provided for me on the cross. See, the danger is that we start relegating faith and trust in God to the beginning of our Christian journey and not to the entirety of our Christian journey. Or we see his provision in Christ as being what makes us or how we become a Christian and not how we be a Christian. It's not the beginning of the Christian life, but how the Christian life is lived. As we confess our brokenness, and our need for Christ moment to moment, we act in faith, looking at the cross, saying, and Jesus, thank you for covering my inadequacy, for covering my sin, for bringing me into relationship with you. But not just that. He's not just provided a covering for our sin, but he provides the strength for us to walk with him, for us to make those faithful decisions moment by moment, like the widow did, saying, Lord, I will turn the other cheek. I will be bold for the gospel. I will put myself in harm's way for the kingdom. Now, we don't have to really often put ourselves in physical harm's way, but maybe emotional and relational harm's way for the sake of the kingdom, because I trust, Lord, that what you are asking of me is good, and because Jesus has died on the cross, and you have provided everything I need, yes, I can walk forward. Because I know you have given me this great thing over here, I know that you will give me what I need here to walk in obedience. Last week we talked about the argument from the greater to the lesser. He has given us all things in Christ. Therefore, I know I can walk forward in faith in all things as well. Even if I can't see how this is good, I know that the Lord will provide. So Yahweh is the only God who truly provides. You know, our idols don't provide. We're going to talk more next week about the foolishness of our idols. I want to talk more this week about God's provision and His power. So God provides, but let's turn our gaze now to see just how much He provides and how, kind of that, how He has power over death. I want to look at His provision and now His power. So our third point today is Yahweh is the true God who has power over death. Yahweh is the true God who has power over death. Power. Picking back up in verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man, O God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to Yahweh, O Yahweh my God, let this child's life come into him again. Let's pause there. Tragedy strikes where this woman loses her child. She says, Elijah, why have you brought this? And it's like, why have you brought my sin to remembrance? It's this idea of the spotlight. It's like, you've brought God's attention on me. Because you're here, he now sees my sin. It's interesting. Elijah doesn't dispute that God is in control or that God has brought the calamity. But instead, he cries out. Faith in Yahweh does not keep us from calamity. But it does give us an answer to calamity. I want to acknowledge that many in our church have walked through suffering and death. And there are some of you who have walked through the death of a child. Both in miscarriage and stillbirth and having a born child pass away. And it is a deep tragedy. And death is our enemy. It is our enemy. And as we walk together as a church, it causes us to cry out, is there a God who can reach past death? That when we encounter our greatest enemy, is there an answer? That when death comes, will there be life again? Can someone reach across that great divide and say, come to life? Idols cannot do that. Only the living God can do that. God was able to keep the widow alive, keep his, the family alive, but now death has entered, and this brings us to the real question that we face. Will death be defeated? You can have a really good player on your team, but that doesn't mean you're going to win the game. When that buzzer sounds and your team is lost, there's nobody that can undo that. It doesn't matter how good your players are. It doesn't matter if you have the MVP and you have an, a Hall of Fame roster, top to bottom. They can't change the score of a game that's been played. But we do not mourn as those who have no hope, do we? We have a God who can reach down into death itself and bring back to life, who can change that final score and bring back life. Death does not have the last word for those who are in Christ. Verse 22. And Yahweh listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. This third point again is Yahweh is the true God who has power over death. I do not know. I do not know why our God does not fix death right here and now for all of us. And why many of us have walked through tragedy and destruction and death. There is not a good, simple answer to that. I wish I could give you one. But what I can do is point to the scriptures and say that our God lives and that he brings life. And that one day, one day, we will be reunited with our loved ones in Christ. In Christ. He is more powerful than death. He has defeated that false god, Mot, that god who would conquer Baal for half the year 
Yahweh lives. The tender mercy of God to say, I will reach out and touch an unclean people and bring them to life. We have been spiritually made alive in Christ, but one day we will be physically made alive at the resurrection. This isn't just, woo, a nice miracle that we see in the pages of the Old Testament. Instead, God is crying out and saying, I am the one who has power. Will you trust? Will you trust? We're still waiting for that final death of death, when death is thrown into the lake of fire. But as we lose loved ones, those near and dear to us, and ultimately our own lives, we know that God will someday make us alive, and he understands what it is like to walk through that death himself. Jesus Christ not only died, but he experienced the death of his friends. When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. But what did he say? First he said, I am the resurrection and the life. But then he called to the tomb and he said, Lazarus, come out. Come out. One day, we too will walk out just as Jesus himself walked out of that tomb. You may feel like your life is falling apart. Like everything is dying, like your marriage is at the end of itself. You may feel like your kids are falling away to who knows where. You may feel like your own walk with God is on the rocks or maybe that you are drowning and you are calling out for help. When we see what God does here in these scriptures, I want you to know that Yahweh, he has all power and he can bring you life. Continue to cry out to him. Cry out. Those cries are not unheard. And yeah, we may not have the fulfillment of them until that final day. But God is not deaf. He is not ignoring us. He does bring life. I think the response we have to have when we read these, this story right here, one, when we, when we respond to his provision and his power, is one, worship. We just worship him for who he is. Christ is our sure and steady anchor. When we were singing that, man, I... I struggled. I almost just lost it sitting there on the side, just tearing up, thinking of, yeah, death is real. Death is real. But it's not the end. And we worship him because of that. We worship. And second, we walk in faith. We walk in faith. First, a, thing, a big way to walk in faith is just confessing our sin and believing that it is covered, that it is forgiven. Maybe we need to walk in faith in our relationships, whether that's extending forgiveness to others or being willing to suffer the anger or wrath of others. Maybe it's being willing to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations, not ghosting people or avoiding it, but instead walking into the hardship. Maybe you're lonely. You're walking through singleness or hard times and you feel like no one is there. What does it look, to, what does it look like to, by faith, look to Christ? And say, Jesus, you are my satisfaction. And Lord, I don't know what you have for me, but you are my satisfaction. Where your marriage is tough, what does it look like to love by faith? To say, I don't even feel this, but I'm going to buy flowers for you today. Not fake it till you make it, but Lord, I trust that as I walk by faith that you're going to provide. And you will bring life to this thing. What does it look like to walk by faith in evangelism? Not knowing what to say, but saying, I'm going to say something. Lord, I trust you. 
What does it look to walk by faith and anxiety? Giving. We talked about those things in Philippians. In all of the hardest circumstances, do you believe that following him will be the best? And then in faith, follow him. Do what he said. Because you trust that what he has said is good. You're willing to look like a fool for Christ. Because what he has said is good. Here's our summary statement for today. In light of him providing all we need, and particularly our deepest need, life in light of death, seeing his power, here's the phrase, God is bringing resurrection, so walk by faith. You have that in your worship order sheet. God is bringing resurrection, so walk by faith. Knowing that God has all power, that he will one day breathe life into your mortal body, making it immortal, Walk by faith. Trust that what he says is good. And move forward step by step in life, trusting that he is giving you the energy, the strength to keep going. Because he is bringing resurrection, what we need. God is bringing resurrection, so walk by faith. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you bring us hope, you bring life and that you restore. We praise you that you are the sure and steady anchor of our souls. We thank you that one day there will be a death of death. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, we thank you that you have provided all we need and that you have all power to provide all else that we need. Everything that comes our way, we know that you will provide. Lord, we also know that one day when we pass into death, we know that one day you will give life to our mortal bodies because you have all power. You are the answer to death. We praise you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name.